This chapter this morning uh, is going to be a little darker. Uh, this, this chapter this morning, as we look and journey with Jesus into Jerusalem, he's going to take a drastic turn, and uh, we're going to see him this morning on what many feel was a Tuesday. Some say it's the Wednesday of his last week here on earth, but regardless, uh, I want to start this morning reading from what we heard him say on uh, Sunday um, before we talk about what happened on Tuesday or Wednesday. So let me read out of Luke 19, 41 to 44 as we begin. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That was Sunday. You're going to hear him share more about that today. But this morning, as we head into this Tuesday, Wednesday, we will see him in the final moments at the temple. And again, if you weren't here last week, the temple was this huge, beautiful wonder of the world that was plated in gold and silver and white marble. And if you were to look from a distance, it was like this white-capped mountain that you'd see in the distance. This thing was enormous. Some say that even it was so big that um, when Jesus was tempted in, in earlier in, in the book of Luke, that when he's tempted and he's taken to the top of the temple, I don't know how you see that. Sometimes in, in, when growing up in church, I saw that as like the steeple, right? And I think this church and the steeple, and he's like you know, balancing on the steeple. Many believe he's not actually at steeple. It's obviously the temple. So he was, some, many believe that he's at the southeast corner of the temple. And if you look down from the southeast corner of the temple, you'd look directly down into the Kidron Valley. Josephus, who was one of the historians of that day, says that if you were to look down from the, the southeast corner, many people would actually need to be pulled away from the corner because as you look down, you'd get really kind of uneasy and unsteady because it was such a long drop down into the Kidron Valley. And so this temple was not this small thing. This was an enormous, enormous structure. And we see that Jesus spends a lot of his time around this temple over the last 48 hours. And as he's getting ready to leave the temple area, uh, he has this moment before he leaves the temple area. And that's where we pick up in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 21 predominantly this morning. And we're not going to go verse by verse, but I am going to hit some major sections as we go along in Luke 21. Again, this is the Tuesday, many say Wednesday, of Christ's final week. Luke 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up as he's leaving the temple and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And we may have heard this story before. Um, we may have heard this idea of this widow, and, and you may have heard it preached in different ways. You may have heard this story is all about how much you give to church. Um, you may have heard this, this story told as you just need to give money out of the little that you have. In other words, you just need to kind of scrape it together, pull it together. This poor widow gave all she had. You need to give all you have 
to the church and to what God's doing. You may have heard that. You may have heard that your money given is not about how much, but it's about your heart in giving it, right? You may have heard that taken from this text as well. You, mu- you may have heard um, this, and hopefully not, but you may have heard this. You must give until it hurts you. Um, and you maybe have heard that from the church, like in giving and finances, and you maybe have heard this story around that. Now, not to sound arrogant, like I'm the best commentator or whatever in the world, but I, I don't know if that's really what this story is all about. I think Luke is actually telling it for a very different reason, and I don't think that this story is actually about the widow very much at all. I think this story is highlighting something very different because in the context of John 21 and in the context of Luke, 9, of, of Luke 20, in Luke 21. I think there's a context here that's very important. I think Luke puts this in this chapter for a reason. I believe we are to see that this is not about the widow. This is about those that we saw last week. This is about the Pharisees, the religious elite, and the Sadducees. This is another grotesque look at what they had turned the temple into. This is another grotesque look at how they corrupted and tweaked religion to make it fit their own agenda. And in today's terms, this story may be told like this. Now, you, you may have seen these men or women on, on television of, uh, before, but they're the televangelist that gets on the screen normally around 1 a.m., um, and there's this really big pull from them to say, you know what, if you just, just support this organization, if you would give tonight, then God is going to bless you. God's going to move in a powerful way in your life. If you just give to this organization the next 30 minutes, you are going to receive a blessing from God. And, and they have this huge pitch and this, this big campaign. And, and you may hear things from this televangelist that gets on the screen that you may have heard in this story of, you must give till it hurts. I'm asking you to give, to give just like this widow. Give till you can't give anymore. And unfortunately, what we've seen is these huge televangelists that seem like maybe they're trying to do the right thing ultimately end up leaving that broadcast in their $3,000 suit, jumping into their Lexus or Tesla, and they end up leaving the, the, the studio, drive home to their million-dollar house, and they have just spent the last 30 minutes begging for that poor widow or that poor woman to give to their ministry. And, and I don't know about you, but when, you hear, when I hear those things, when I see those stories, when I hear of the injustices that are done with that, I, I honestly have a really unchristian moment, or maybe it's a Christian moment, I don't know. I really want to just go and punch that guy in the face. That's really, like, I don't know if that's Christian or not Christian, but if you're pulling from ladies who are barely struggling to get by, and you're begging them for their last pennies, and then you're driving away, and you're like, wow, I guess we got they gave a dollar, it's better than nothing, and their bank account's padded, they have no worries at all. It really tries my patience, and I really want to do things that probably weren't you know, the best Christian thing to do. And that's where we see this story in Luke 21. You see, the Jewish law at the temple was that the smallest acceptable amount, the smallest acceptable amount that you could give towards the temple was what this poor widow gave. We often see this as, well, that's all she had. She scraped it together, and that's all she had. Well, if you truly look at the Jewish context in this, actually what she gave was the lowest common acceptable coins so that she could receive her blessing. She got, and I don't know if this is a verb, but she got televangelized. (laughs) She got pulled out of her last resources and all of her money, and she got pulled into these Pharisees that were demanding that she must adhere to the amount they saw sufficient if she wanted God's blessing in her life. If she wanted to be heard by God, she better get those two pennies into the offering plate. Otherwise, God's not going to hear you. This is not faith. 
can, you just, can I just say this? To those who maybe have been burned in church before, and you're like, okay, here we go into another giving story. This is not a giving story. This is truly the response of the truth of this statement, that this is not faith. What she did is the manipulation that they were asking. They weren't demanding faith from her. They were just simply manipulating her. This is the money view of the, that has damaged so many churches today. And you may have friends or family that are like, I don't go to church because they just want my money. You maybe have heard that before. And this, unfortunately, doesn't help the cause. And how do we know this? Because we look back to Luke 19, we hear Jesus saying the exact things about the Pharisees that we would say about the televangelists today. Luke 19, 40, 45, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and feasts who, this is crazy, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. Because it's not about faith. It's about manipulation and power and money and it's gross and it's disgusting. And Christ sees this at the temple ongoing for years. And as heroic as this woman was, Jesus is exposing something else. The greed, the oppression, the self-serving, the demeaning actions of the Pharisees. That's what he's pulling out of the story. They had allowed all the power and all the money to stain not just the name of the temple. They had allowed their greed and their power and their authority to stain the name of God himself. And that is something God will always, always Hear me, he will always defend his name, his glory, and his reputation at all costs. And we may not like it because our story sometimes doesn't quite fit into that as easily as we'd like it to. But God will always, always, always defend his name, his glory, his reputation. Because that's who he is. The name of God himself was being stained. And this is where we start this morning. This injustice that must be met with action had been going on for about 300 years. This is not new. Christ didn't come into the the temple with the last 48 hours and be like, what is this? This is crazy. This is nuts. He'd seen this for years and years and years and nothing had changed. And this is what Luke 21 is all about. This is what Jesus will deal with in the middle of his last week. This is what Jesus will come to fix. Luke 21, 5 and 6, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things, you will see the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. So as they see this widow, somebody sees all this stuff of the temple, like, man, this place is gorgeous. This place is amazing. Look at this temple. This is awesome. And as they're leaving, he says, yeah, it ain't going to be here long. Can you imagine that? The pinnacle of the Christian faith, the pinnacle of the, the Jewish faith, I should say, the, the pinnacle of all they held, they held dear. Yeah, this ain't going to be here soon, boys. And as they're leaving, they go and retire to the Mount of Olives, which is where he always goes at the end of his days in the last week. And he retires with his disciples to the, the Mount of Olives. We get that out of Mark 13, uh, 3 through 4. Jesus leaves the temple area and goes to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. It says in verse 3 of Mark 13, And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be a sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? That's Mark. Jesus is about to share with his inner circle what is to come. He will share why he was weeping over this city. 
And that's where we find him on this Tuesday, Wednesday evening, whichever one you prefer. We find him in the middle of his week in the evening, surrounded with his closest disciples. And he's going to tell them some pretty powerful things. He's going to tell them four major destructions are about to come. I told you this morning it's going to get dark. So he's going to tell them four major things are going to happen. One, he says the temple's going to be destroyed. It's going to get burned, leveled, nothing left. I'm going to tell about that in just a second. He foretells the deaths of the disciples. Hey, guys, the temple's going to burn. It's going to go down. Hey, by the way, you guys, all you disciples, you're going to die too. You're all going to get martyred for your faith, minus that guy over there. He might live a little longer. But for most of you, it's over. It, you're, you're going to perish for this faith. And then he foretells not only the disciples, he then foretells the destruction of Jerusalem, the city itself, and then he foretells the death of all mankind. Can you imagine? You've just left the temple. It's gorgeous maybe that evening. And you pull into this night, and it's dark, and it's quiet. And all of a sudden, like, Jesus, when is this going to happen? It's going to be soon. And guess what? Everything burns. <laughs> Everything burns. So... So no kingship in Rome? No, like, John James, we get the right and left seat of Jesus? Like, what, what, what are you talking about? Everything burns. Everything will go. And we're not going to be able to go verse by verse this morning. But let me just tell you, uh, he, he's going to address false Christs. He's going to talk about wars and commotions, nations rising against nations in verse 11, famines, pestilence, fearful signs, great signs from heaven, persecution of believers. This is going to get really crazy. We're not going to get to all this because, trust me, we got the book of Revelation still to go this summer. Um, so for those of you who are kind of like, but this is the stuff. Like for you guys who love end time stuff, like you, you know, you've read all the left behinds. You listen to John Hagee too much. Like you, you bought the convertible. So in case God comes, you're ready, you know, just to leave the convertible at any moment, right? You have bought the sunroof in your house so that you've got exit plans ready. Like if that's you this morning and you like love end times i'm sorry you're not going to get that today but you will get it later um and please for those who are in those moments you're like i just got to know every single thing and is that the mark of the beast is that the mark of the beast i'm pretty sure my wife is the mark of the beast if any of those kind of things run through your mind please escape them from your mind because that is not really where we're going today and just just for the sake for, for me personally, and you've ever, if you've ever talked to me about end time stuff, you're going to kind of get left down. You're going to get let down when you talk to me about end time stuff. You're like, is it this? And I'm like, I don't know. And you're like, well, then I'm going to go find somebody that does know. Right? And so for those who maybe like you love end time stuff, this is going to be very disappointing for you this morning because there are so many things we're not going to answer for you. And maybe even in Revelation, we may not answer everything for you, but we're going to dive into Revelation starting in May or June or somewhere in there. And, uh, but this morning, he foretells all of these things that are about to happen some are end times, some are actually things that have already happened. So the text, much like prophecies in the Bible, some have already happened and some are yet to come. The first three have already happened. You're going to see him share about these things. The, the temple, the disciples, and Jerusalem, all these things have already happened. So let me fill you in on this text here. Let's read 21. Um, let's go through verse uh, 5 through 9. And, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it adorned stones, noble stones and offerings, he said... As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will no, not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. We talked about that. Verse 7. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. Uh, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be 
at once. So he talks about that, and then secondly, he goes over to verses 20 and 24. Let's hit these first. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath upon those people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, and he be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, this passage um, is all about the destruction of the temple and then all about the destruction of Jerusalem. And just so you can hear some, some history of this, let me, let me read this to you um, out of a commentary um, that steals a lot from Josephus, who's, again, the historian of the time, to give you some context of what actually happened. Christ promised this thing in, in A.D. 32, we believe, and about 30 years later, this actually came to pass. So God, cho- God had chosen Jerusalem as the place where his name would dwell. We talked about that in Luke 19. Many times in her history, though, armies had threatened her and stood outside her walls. Sometimes through the Lord's merciful intervention, danger was adverted. For instance, three armies approached in the days of Jehoshaphat, which is Second Chronicles chapter 20. So all the way back in the Old Testament, three armies approached in the days of Jehoshaphat, but they didn't get through. But as the people inside the city worshipped the God, the troops were struck and turned against one another. In the days of Hezekiah, however, over 185,000 troops sent by Shenechakrim, king of Assyria, came against the city, and the army was destroyed by the angel of the Lord. It was preserved in both those times. However, would the city be spared the next time? In Luke 21, the Lord taught that it would be surrounded by armies and destroyed. The emperor Vaspian Weary with Jewish defiance of his army of occupation and skirmishes with the local people, sent his son Titus to crush the resistance in Israel. So in AD 70, what we hear and what we know in history is that Vespian, weary of Jewish defiance, is going to send an army of occupation and he's going to crush Israel because I'm tired of these people making my life difficult. So the troops arrive in the spring of AD 70. And Jesus said that not one stone of the temple would remain upon the other. The temple finally fell on the Sabbath day, August 10th of that year. That's crazy. It literally fell on the Saturday, August 10th of that year. And the soldiers broke apart every stone of the temple to retrieve the melting gold, which they could see in the cracks between the stones. Now, let me just kind of put that into context. They were searching for the melted gold that they could find in between the cracks of the stones that had fallen. How hot does gold have to be for it to melt, right? And for it to be melting and them searching through this melted stone and rubble, there is nothing left of this temple, The soldiers broke apart each stone of the temple to retrieve the melting gold, which they could see between the cracks between the stones. And by September of that year, the entire city had been taken and for the most part reduced to burning rubble. The temple, Jerusalem, had gone. And not only had it gone, he burned it to the ground. So much so that many believe the number is somewhere between one and a half million Jews died that day or during that campaign. So when he says this is coming, this is not like, oh, Jesus in your imagery again. This is for real. This is legitimate. And this is a drastic, drastic destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. Christ told those in Judea to flee to the mountains on the day that the armies arrived. And the people would need to leave urgently and not look back for their belongings. He says the ancient historians um, 
recorded that the, that the Christians in Jerusalem who numbered the thousands took the Lord's words exactly to heart and seriously fled to Pella in the region of Decapolis. Although Jerusalem had been very well fortified and prepared for such the onslaught, factions within the city led to the destruction of supplies and the onset of starvation, and the Romans finally broke down the walls and burnt and leveled the city. This was to come, and this was the destruction, and this was due to the fact that they had gone so far and polluted things so far that God said, I need to restore this faith. I need to restore my people. And unfortunately, at the cost of utter destructions. The crazy thing is, tragically, over 2,000 years, and it's not Jerusalem, but we know that war has done the same damage and is continuing to do the same damage today. The temple and Jerusalem would fall. And as a result of it falling, the amazing thing is we get a new way of doing Christianity. We get a way without sacrifices. We don't have to bring goats into, this, into the services this morning, and I get to cut them in front of you and bleed out all over nice wood floors. I don't have to do that anymore because Christ says, I'm going to start something new. So he not only says that's going to be destroyed, but he says the disciples themselves were to be killed. And we know of two that are recorded in Scripture that we know for sure were killed because of their faith or because of their connection with Christ. But we also know of others from tradition that were killed for the faith. This screen is actually a list of the disciples, and there's a weird thing where you can make an infographic about this. I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but we made an infographic about all the deaths of the disciples. And, and it's, just, it's a kind of a, a stark reminder of, of, of what God's called us to. And some of these are kind of like, I don't know if I fully agree with all of these. I think some of these may be just tradition. But let me just share a couple of the disciples that were, that were killed for their faith. James, in Acts chapter 12, 1 and 2, was killed by the sword. We know that specifically. The other one we know that was killed was Judas himself by hanging. And so another one of the disciples that was killed. The tradition says that Peter, or I'm sorry, that Peter and Andrew uh, were both died from crucifixion. Peter from being crucified upside down and Andrew on a cross that looked more like an X for the crucifixion. But we believe both of those brothers, ironically, were crucified for their faith. Thomas was killed by spears. It's probably one of the well-known ones that's backed up by history. The one who has always seemed to be the doubter had to die by spearing. And probably the one that probably changed most of history for most of us is not an original disciple, but the Apostle Paul, this is recorded again and again and again, was beheaded somewhere around AD 68, and many believe he was beheaded actually in the year of AD 70. Actually, many believe that Peter, Paul, and Timothy were all publicly executed in the same year Jerusalem burned to the ground. If you think you've got issues with the church today, and we wonder if God is ever going to return. Can you imagine, can you imagine the temples destroyed and the top hitters of the Christian faith, all three are publicly executed in front of, in front of everyone. Paul, Peter, Timothy, those are the principal groundwork cornerstones of the church, all gone. Temple, gone. Eighty seventy was utter destruction. And the disciples see this fulfillment of even they had to perish. Jesus in his final conversation with the disciples is reminding them, you are not to be like the religious elite. You will walk humbly. You will have to die for your faith. You see, the Pharisees and the religious elites demanded justice and yet oppressed anyone who stood in the way of their own comfort. 
May we not be so. The, the religiously demanded preference and power at the cost of widows and children. And they would say, this is what God is like. May we not ever be that. They got drunk on power and prejudice, and they would say, that's what God's like. And Jesus is saying to the disciples and us today, no, 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 no. My name, my reputation, my glory will be upheld, and I will protect it at all costs. You must humbly follow me. You must humbly take up your cross and follow me, regardless of where that leads. Luke 21, 14 to 16, this is beautiful. In the midst of this utter destruction of the disciples themselves, this is an amazing promise he gives to them. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate before on how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents. You'll be delivered up even by brothers. You'll be delivered up even by relatives. You'll be delivered up by friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You see, we, we think that Christianity is this easy walk track. No problems. God's good. We believe that if I do the right things, God will bless me. If I do the wrong things, he'll smite me, right? That, that, that's not what he's saying. He says, I have a plan that's bigger than your plan, and my plan will always prevail over your individual plan. I may use you in my glory and in my plan, but ultimately I have a plan, and you don't get to say what my, what my plan is. Does that make sense? We often assume, God, I'll tell you how to run life today. And God says, I've been running the world, thank you, since it was created. I think I've got this. And he will always prepare and advance his name above our reputation again and again and again. And he will do it not only in our individual lives, he will advance his reputation and his glory above Community Bible Church's name in this community. Praise God. That, that, that he's going to use us if we're faithful, we, we can walk with him. But ultimately, his plan will succeed and it's not dependent on any of us. You see, the power that corrupted the Jewish religious leaders also corrupted the Roman Gentiles who took out the Jerusalem that they held so dear. Sin is powerful and evil and has been around since Genesis. And Jesus ends his conversations with his disciples saying, yes, evil has been around since the beginning. And here's the worst case scenario. It will continue to be around until I come back a second time. And he foretells mankind's end destruction when he talks in Luke 21, 25 to 28. And there will be signs in sun, moon, and stars. See, I told you, you got to get there. And on the earth, distresses of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of, which, of what is coming on the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. And when they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, Raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. And he asks us as followers of Christ to do something in Luke 21, 34 to 36. But you, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dispensation and drunkenness with cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He ends this very dismal discourse on this mid of, midweek of his life by saying, be ready, don't get, don't get distracted, be ready, be ready, and by the way, pray. Be praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things. 
be praying that you are so in love with Christ and so in love with his reputation that it doesn't matter what comes. We can follow our king all the way into eternity because we're trusting in our king more than we're trusting in these princes and these terrible, terrible leaders here in, on this earth. We are trusting something bigger. Be ready. Don't get distracted. Don't get deluded by culture that you're living in. Don't, don't get worn down. This, this word of dispensation, it's, it's basically you could put in the word wasted. Don't get wasted on this world. There's your phrase. There's your tattoo. Um, don't get wasted on this world. Don't allow this world to get you so drunk on all the things that it's dealing with. Do you feel like this is all there is and I got to fight every cause because this is what God would do? Don't get caught up in this world. Be ready and don't get distracted for when I come. You see, following Jesus has been easy probably in the United States for decades. Let me just say that. I mean, we, we've had it very easy for decades. Let me just say, for those who think the last two years you've been persecuted, you've not been persecuted. I love you enough to tell you, you've not been persecuted. Your preference has been taken away. And that's hard. But you've not been persecuted. Persecuted is way different. Persecuted is my name of love of Jesus Christ is being taken, is being taken and turned against me for my death. That, that, that's persecution. And so when he's talking about be ready, he says, don't, don't get caught up in all these things of what is around you in culture. I want you to be ready and praying that you follow the king even more so as we look to his return. Just because we've had it easy doesn't mean that others have. I was just in a conversation this last week with a friend of mine who will actually be hopefully sharing here in May. He's a missionary, was a missionary pastor for a while, and now he's not pastoring uh, looking back into the mission field, but he's actually from Ukraine and, and hearing him share of uh, stories where he said, you know, the weirdest thing, Joel, is when I look, in the, when I look on TV and I see a bomb uh, in the playground where my kids used to play. He goes, that's, that's rough. I'm like, yeah. He goes, you know what's also rough is I've got a lady from Russia that we flew in and she almost didn't make it out because they're shutting down all the flights coming out of there because they want to keep people in, in there. And, and we barely got her into the States but we get her here, and she's in tears, and she's in tears not because she's made it to the United States. And unfortunately, one great American found her at the airport and says, aren't you so glad you're here? You're home. She's like, please don't, please don't let them be following Christ. Please don't. She goes, no, my home is there, and I've had to leave it. And she teaches, and she's doing it virtually right now, and she's worried she's going to eventually have to go back. But, but those real-life stories he was able to share with me over coffee last week and just being able to hear a personal connection to the, the atrocities that are happening makes me wonder again and again. We've had it so easy. What is our response? And I think our response is truly, I've asked him, like, what do you need? What do, what do we do? What do we do? How can we help? And there's finances and there's things like that. But he's like, pray. I need you to pray. I need you to pray. I need you to pray. Because only God can fix that. He's got pastors that are still there. They're trying to work their way through. These people are truly having to deal with the worst of these things. But he says, I want you to pray. You see, my fear is that, that we come to this text, is, is, that we play this, this game with God, that, that, that we, we, we get caught up in all these different causes and concerns, and, and we truly miss the heart of the gospel, which is Christ himself. My fear that comes through this text is when we play games with God in his name, there will be those that are wounded by it. 
The Pharisees were playing games with God's name, and there was plenty to get wounded by it. May we not do as a religious lead did and, and, and redefine Christ to fit our, our comfort and our agendas of today. May we not do that. May we not say God is outdated and out of touch with us in 2022. God is just as in charge and just as in control as he was then. May we not play the game of having pet causes and campaigns while having hearts that are not submitted to Jesus. This is a personal one. But let me just, just encourage you today. May we not play the game of having pet causes and campaigns, doing all the right things, outward actions, while having hearts that are not submitted to Jesus. Let me just encourage you and challenge you as we wrap up this morning in this, this point alone. Let me just challenge you a little bit, and that is to regulate your intake of pain, of drama, of war, and all these things that can draw our attention in. Because here's the thing. There's an interesting article that says, how, have we become a, how has war become a spectator sport? How have we kind of lumped it in with the final four and the, and the, and the brackets and being like, I'm just going to watch this for a while. Because my fear is, not that that's bad, I, I want you to hear me. But my fear is we get so consumed and we have to watch every painful story and every news article that our heart gets ripped apart in the process. And here's the thing you need to know this morning and why I'm asking you to regulate your intake of pain and drama and pain. is because your heart, your soul was not made to handle it. It's just, it's just not. We live in 2022 where you get instant access to every pain around the world in a second. And for those who put their hearts in all those different pains, we wonder why we're so anxious. We wonder why mental health apps are up by 30% right now. It's because we've allowed ourselves to be drawn into everything that, that we feel is a pain or a cause, and we got to be part of it. I'm asking you to pull back and say, God, I'm not you. I'm not in control of all these pains and all these injustices. You are. So I'm going to allow myself to pull back from the, drain, from, the, from the trauma and all these things so that I can handle what's in front of me. Not only that, but you do it for your kids. Are, are we protecting our kids as well? Because they aren't meant to handle all of our dramas and all of our pains and all of our things that we roll into every single week. They aren't meant to handle it. Protect their hearts by how much you consume on a weekly basis of media, news, drama, whatever. You fill your week with. I fill my week with. Regulate it. My question that came up with in this that, that I had to answer for myself is, how many of the problems and pains that I am trying to fix in my life live within a 25-mile radius of me? How many of the pains and injustices that I'm dealing with on a regular basis live within five miles of me? And, and not that those don't matter. But I'm saying we can get so caught up in the world, we can miss what's right here and right now. My fear is that you're not regulating the consumption of pain, drama, and issues so that you cannot and should not focus, or so that you cannot, maybe can't fix what's right in front of you and what's surrounding you in your own families, in your own towns here. So, where do we go with this? One, may we not demand social compliance over whatever cause comes up next on the left or the right. But maybe making the mistake of the religious who attached God's name to those causes. May instead we burn the idols of our life down, burn them to dust till all that remains is Jesus. And all that remains is walking humbly and meekly with Jesus all the way to the cross. Because that's where he's heading. He's walking to the cross. When we play games with the name of God, there will always be those that are wounded by it. 
And this morning as we close, I want us to think of all those injustices and pains we're working through and ask myself, as I think of them, as I see them come up, one, am I regulating where I'm, I'm heading with those? Do I, do I actually set margin in my, or, or set boundaries in my life? And secondly, do I believe that Jesus is better equipped to handle them than I am? I think that's the hard part, right? I think we know it, but I think it's a hard thing to believe that Jesus is better equipped to handle this injustice than I am. So I've got to turn it over to him. Do I trust Jesus enough that he is wiser than I think he is? Do I trust Jesus enough that he is more just than I think he is? Not vengeful, justice. And is it possible, is it completely possible that I could trust him with it? And let me just remind you this morning, it is possible. It is possible to follow him, walking with him humbly. The disciples did it. We can do it. And this morning as we close out, um, I wanted to kind of sing out this, this anthem that, that oftentimes our minds and our hearts and our, our, our consumption of what's around us can lead us to, to believe something different, that Jesus can't handle this, that he's outdated, he, he, he doesn't make sense of my world today, but I want you to believe he, he is, it is true, he can, and he will continue to defend his name and his reputation about everything else, and we get to be part of that journey with him. So this morning, I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. I want to pray for those issues in our world, and then I want us to be able to sing this anthem out together that we truly know that he is better than all these things and we can trust him with it as we wrap up this, eve, or this, this morning. Let me pray for us as we, as we close. God, this is a hard passage. Um, this is a hard reality when, when everything we see around us, the injustices, the pains, and everything that we see don't line up with our own preferences and our own desires of what we want to see happen. And so this morning, we, we know that there are plenty of issues. There are plenty of people that are being hurt. There are plenty of injustices happening on a regular basis that we're not in control of. Some personal or our own lives today. Family, friends that are just really struggling with things that are just unfair. All the way out to global, to those pastors, those friends in Ukraine. There is injustice all around us. May we not ever, though, doubt your ability to save. May we not ever doubt your heart and protecting your name and your glory. Father, thank you for the churches that are rising up in Poland and, hung, and, and around that area in Moldova. Father, the, the churches that are opening their doors and saying, come on in, we've got food, we've got relief, we've got care, we've got places for you to stay. Thank you for the church being the church. We, we pray for them. We pray for their pastors. We pray for their leaders. That they would shepherd in harder times than we've ever seen. And would your name be bigger? Would your glory be more pronounced? And ours be smaller? And in moments where we have doubts and if we can trust you, I pray we'd sing this anthem out with conviction that yes, you are to be trusted. Yes, your name is better. Here I pray.